It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It was a hot and sticky summer night on August 6th, 1988. The sun was no longer beating down on the Cheshire Fair in New Hampshire, the only light coming from colorful rides and games scattered about the fairgrounds. It was an exciting time for 22-year-old Jane Borowski. At seven months pregnant, she was greeted with belly rubs as friends congratulated her throughout the night. Though in good spirits, Jane felt the effects of the summer heat. She was thirsty, but vendors were closed at that hour. So she decided to call it a night and head home, deciding to stop at a convenience store along the way. Since the convenience store was closed, Jane bought a soda from the vending machine outside and relaxed with her cool, refreshing beverage in her car. Quenching her thirst with a few long sips, she noticed a vehicle pull up and park beside her. The driver got out of the car and made his way to Jane's car window asking if there was a payphone nearby. But before she could answer, he grabbed her, forcing her out of the car. Jane fought back, kicking hard enough that she shattered her windshield. The stranger began yelling bizarre and confusing accusations at her before retreating back to his own car. Hot, confused, and angry, Jane wasn't going to let him get away easily. She shouted, what about my windshield? What happened next would alter the course of Jane's life, making her the only known survivor of the infamous Connecticut River Valley serial killer. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. When the violent stranger heard Jane's question about her windshield, he returned to her with a vicious ferocity, pressing a knife against her throat. Jane was terrified. She tried to run to an approaching car screaming for help, but she was unable to gain the driver's attention. The monster then chased after Jane and tackled her to the ground and proceeded to stab her 27 times. He left Jane on the ground, laying in a pool of her own blood. He believed he killed her, but Jane's unbreakable will to survive was stronger than her attacker. Jane switched into survival mode. Bleeding out from her numerous stab wounds, she returned to her car and drove to get help. Despite the odds, Jane and her baby survived an attack from the Connecticut River Valley serial killer a man who killed at least seven women throughout the northeastern region of the United States. Decades later, his identity still remains a mystery. With a voice that refuses to be silenced, Jane continues to advocate for families and victims of other cold cases, 
With her podcast, Invisible Tears, she tells their stories and fights for justice. Today, Jane joins me to share her story of survival, strength, and hope. I was uh, 22. I was seven months pregnant with my daughter, and I crossed path with evil. <laughs> no, no other easy way to say it. Uh, I went to a fair, uh, lived in a very, very small community um, back in the 80s. I mean, this happened in 88. So back in the 80s, there was virtually no major crime in the area. Uh, I went to a fair, uh, the county fair that they have every year. Um, met up with a few people, you know, people come up, have to do the baby rub, the, <laughs> the baby belly rub, and was probably at the fair for a few hours. And uh, it was super hot and muggy, crazy hot summer, probably similar to this one uh, that summer. And uh, it got dark. Vendors were starting to shut down. So I decided uh, it was time for me to leave. So uh, I was driving home. It was, you know, after 11 o'clock, stores and, and all that were closed. But I, I was thirsty, so I wanted to stop. And um, I knew a store that was on my way home that had a soda vending machine outside. So I stopped there to grab a soda. I was parked right in front of the soda machine. It was a payphone <laughs> uh, right next to the 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 soda machine and um so i was parked right in front of there and a vehicle pulled in next to me uh, i didn't think anything of it really i thought there's a payphone there's a soda machine he's going to use one of the two and um next thing i know he walked around the back side of my car and and asked me if the payphone worked and opened my car door and tried to grab me and take me out of the car and uh, I, I fought right off. Uh, I immediately fought. Uh, I started kicking him. I ended up going like over my console of my car and started kicking him. And as I was kicking him, I had kicked the windshield of my car and smashed my windshield. And um, after a few moments of um, trying to fight him off me and, and not go with him, uh, he had taken a knife out of his back pocket and, and pretty much you know was like maybe this will you know get you to come out of the car and it did I, I got out of the car and um he he was just like acting really weird like said that I beat up his girlfriend and and asked if I had a Massachusetts car if I was uh, the plates on my car were Massachusetts plates, which I lived in New Hampshire. And so it was really, he started being like kind of weird. I thought, what does this guy want? And I was really confused about, um, at that point, I was really confused about what he wanted. Uh, and then the next thing I know, he started walking back to his vehicle. And I was like, I went from scared to confused to pissed off <laughs> because I had a smashed windshield. And, you know, I, I said the words that, uh, these words that I'll regret for the rest of my life. I said, hey, what about my windshield? And that's when he came back to me. Uh, he put the knife up against my neck. Uh, 
And I saw a vehicle driving by and I said, well, the only way I'm going to get out of this situation is to run to the road and scream, try to get that vehicle's attention. Um, and this was a, a main road. This was Route 10 in Swansea, New Hampshire. It is a main road. So I just, um, I dashed to the road and and started screaming. And before I knew it, he had tackled me down like a football player and he was on top of me and he proceeded to stab me. And uh, a lot of my, my stab wounds were defensive wounds. I was trying to protect my baby. Um, and uh, so he ultimately stabbed me 27 times. I had uh, two collapsed lungs. He sliced my juggler. I, he cut the tendon in my thumb, uh, the tendon in my knee. He lacerated my liver. So, yeah, I had, I had quite a few wounds. Um, and then he, he stopped and uh, walked through his vehicle and left. And I got to my vehicle to, to go and try and get help. And I ended up driving down the road. Uh, a friend of mine lived about two miles down the road and uh, got my car and I drove down the road. And before I knew it, I was behind this guy. <laughs> and um, I was like, oh, God. All right, he's going to see where I turn in. Uh, but he went straight. I turned into my friend's driveway and got help. I collapsed on his steps and, and ultimately got help. Going back to those first moments, this story is so horrific and so hard to listen to. I can't imagine what it was like to experience it while seven months pregnant. Yeah. At any point, did he register that there was a baby involved? Did he ever observe or say something about that? Absolutely. Um, when he first got in the car and tried to grab me out of the car, I did, I screamed and I, I did say, you know, please don't hurt me. I'm seven months pregnant. I'm pregnant. Um, so he knew, he knew. I was very visually pregnant also. So he absolutely knew I was pregnant. Did he, yeah. sit, did he acknowledge that ever with no. a comment? No. The only thing he ever really said was um, about taking the knife out and getting me out of the car that he wanted me to go with him. Uh, does the payphone work? And and uh, me beating up his girlfriend and me having a um, Massachusetts license plate. Uh, so those are really after all that. There was absolutely no conversation with him. Um, he never never said anything. And you know he knew I was pregnant, but he he didn't care. He didn't care. Can you describe him physically? Um, he was slender, um, clean shaved, uh, high forehead, kind of blondish hair, thin, long face. Um, he, he didn't have a, a smell on him. Um, like I didn't smell like body odor or uh, I didn't smell any like um, alcohol or anything on him. Honestly, if you walk down the street, he was just a regular, normal-looking guy. You know, these monsters don't always look like monsters. And uh, 
this guy did not look like a monster. But he was. He's a monster. The extent of your injuries, and you were still able to get up and go to your car and drive and get to your friend's house, can you share about your unborn baby and how she fared? Yeah. Um, I carried her for another two months, and uh, she was born two months after my attack. She did have a lot of problems. Um, my pregnancy after my attack was not the best. I was I was high risk. And uh, I ended up having a an emergency C-section. Uh, she was born a blue baby with no blood pressure. So she was rushed up to um, the NIC unit up in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Um, and she had to fight for her life for like uh, three weeks. Uh, she was on a ventilator. We didn't know if she was going to survive. Her, her, They gave her about a 30% chance of survival. But she survived. And uh, she does have some neurological issues. Um, but she's, she's a mom. <laughs> she blessed me with a beautiful granddaughter. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I survived because of her. I always say that, and I will always say that till the day I die. She wanted to survive. And as I was fighting for my life, I knew she wanted to survive. And, uh, I, I almost want to say, had I not been pregnant, I may not have survived. But, you know, she just had that strength in her and, and gave me the strength to fight to survive. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Thinking back to those moments of your fighting, did it feel instinctual to you? Did it feel reactionary? Did it feel proactive for that the mother's instinct and the protective instinct for your unborn baby in those moments, what did it feel like? I know when I was in the hospital, like I, I was in ICU for, for a few weeks. Um, I was in the hospital for almost a month. And, um, you know, I, in my first, I can remember when they first put me in rescue after my attack, my first concern was my baby. You know, is my baby okay? We when, when when we got to the hospital, I was in and out of consciousness, but I kept asking, you know, is my baby okay? Um, so when I woke up in ICU, that that was one of the first things, you know, felt my baby. Am I still pregnant? You know, did my baby survive? And, and you know, she did. She's she's one strong chick. She's <laughs> she really is. She's um she she's strong. She gets yeah. it from her mom. Oh, thank you. So thank you. when you woke up in the hospital, um, you sought help from your friend and you had this physical description and the car, et cetera. Can you describe what happened with the police investigation following the attack? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um the the police the de detectives um 
they interviewed me quite a bit for the first couple of months after my attack. A matter of fact, when they were in the hospital, when I was still in the hospital, I was in ICU on a ventilator. Um, they they came in, and that's when they actually did the the composite. Believe it or not, I had to blink once for yes and and two for no. Um, as they were showing me these slides of eyes and nose and cheek and and real detailed, um, they had these real detailed slides of facial features and and I blink if I if I saw you know a facial feature that kind of fit what he looked like and that's how the composite was done. It was it was all done by blinking my eyes and um, it was probably. I don't know. I, I was out of ICU and it was um, probably about two weeks. Um, everybody tried to keep the news from me. Like I couldn't read the newspaper. I was all over the newspaper. I was all over news. Um, CNN covered it. Uh, they were at the hospital. Uh, the the Back then, they didn't hold back on the victim's identity. They, they had the identity and they just splashed it all over the news. They don't do that today. Um, only unless the case is solved or the, the person passed. Um, but if the person is a survivor and the case is not solved, they don't release um, uh, the identity of the victims anymore. Um, but back then they did. So um, I finally got a hold of one of the newspapers one day and I saw in the newspaper that they were connecting me with the Connecticut River Valley serial killer, which was a serial killer that was uh, um, going around killing women up in the um, Connecticut River Valley, which is it's a, um, a part of uh, New Hampshire and Vermont uh, off of 91 um, uh, mostly Claremont area where these women were, their bodies were coming up. Um, they were murdered. They were stabbed. So I was reading in the paper that they were possibly connecting me with their cases. Uh, and then when the detectives came in after I read that in the paper, I was like, is this true? And, and they were like, yeah, we, we believe that you were a victim of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. And I said, were there any other survivors? And they said, no, you're the first survivor. Uh, there's been seven of them, if not eight, that were murdered and none of them survived. And that was so surreal to me. I was like, are you kidding me? So there's a serial killer out there. You guys still haven't identified him. My name is all over the news. I, I, I'm not feeling very safe right now, you know. Um, while I was in the hospital, I had a police guard at my door, at my uh, hospital room's door, where everybody had to be, you know, either signed in or okayed by me to come in to see me. Um, so as soon as I found this information out, I'm like, hey, is this guy going home with me? And they were like, no, no. But we're going to have uh, police uh, drive by your house on a regular basis. Uh, so that was that was pretty unnerving to me. Um, so... The police, they, they kept in contact with me for a few months, um, like six months after my attack. I was, um, I went through hypnosis to try to 
identify the plate number on the vehicle because uh, he was right in front of me driving down the road. Um, was that successful? It was, but it wasn't. Um, I did get the first three digits. I did get that it was a New Hampshire plate um, and a couple of other small details with the plate, but I did not get a full license plate um, number. I was 22. I had just been stabbed 27 times. All I was thinking about was getting help. My windshield was shattered. So I'm driving down the road with a shattered windshield. It was at night. And under hypnosis, I kept saying that my windshield was, uh, the, the license plate was dirty. Mm-hmm. So we were, we were unable to get a full license plate um, partial, which now this was 35 years ago, and there's still no, no progress with that. They, they've, uh, they haven't found anything to match that plate. Um, you know, the vehicle was possibly a, uh, Jeep Wagoneer with wood grain sides. It had, it was like a brown or a dark green in color. They couldn't tell really too much of that because when they went back the next night, there were fluorescent lights in the parking lot. So, um, with the fluorescent lights, uh, a dark brown vehicle could also look like a, a dark green vehicle. So it was either a dark brown or a dark green vehicle, but it did have wood siding, uh, wood grade, wood green uh, siding. But um, no, to this day, uh, my case and all the Connecticut River Valley's cases are unsolved. Unsolved. Some of them are, are almost 40 years old. Do you remember the kind of knife he was using, meaning was it a kitchen knife or did it look like a hunting knife or something? And did that match the type of stab wounds that the Connecticut River serial killer, that those wounds were like? Yeah, it was like a, a hunting knife is, is um, what I remember. Yeah. 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 And as the investigation continued, but without concrete results, how did that make you feel? And what were your conversations like with law enforcement? Well, it was like every time I saw them, I I expected that they had a suspect or a person of interest, that they knew who who did this. Um, Now, I did not know about the Connecticut River Valley serial killer before my attack. We didn't have internet. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have social media. I was only 22. So I, I did not know that there was a serial killer running around New Hampshire uh, stabbing and killing women. Um, but I, every time I saw them, for some reason, I had in my mind that this would be pretty easy to solve. This guy is going to be pretty easy to find. And and um, so I'd always ask, you know, so you guys know who it is. So you, you guys, you know, you found him or, you know, you have a person of interest or whatever. And, um, you know, every time I saw the, the detectives, they were like, no, we have nothing. We have nothing. We have leads. We're following up on leads. But we basically have nothing. 
because of their supposition that it was the same person that was killing women in Vermont and Connecticut, New Hampshire, because it crosses state lines. Did the federal government get involved and did you interact with federal law enforcement at all? Before my attack, when they found like the fourth body, they knew that they had a problem. Um, So Vermont and New Hampshire formed a task force because they knew they had a serious, serious serial killer, Roman, Roman, the, the area. So they formed a task force. They they had this task force for a few years, and uh, and then it just they they the tips stopped coming in. So they they pretty much stopped the task force. I asked several times about FBI coming in because it was, you know, crossed state lines. It was both both New Hampshire and Vermont. But New Hampshire refused to have the FBI come in. Now, that may sound familiar with Maura Maura's story. Uh, the Maury, the Murrays have asked several times to have the FBI come in and investigate her case, and they refuse. Um, it is to my knowledge, they've never allowed the FBI to ever come in to investigate anything. And it's unfortunate. I, we have no re, we have no idea why, or why not. We they don't give us a, a, a reason. It doesn't make sense to me, and it kind of angers me because, um, especially now, thirty five years later, let's have some good, fresh, professional uh, eyes look at these cases, and see maybe there's something missing. You know, maybe they are overlooking something that, you know, the FBI may have seen in a previous case somewhere else in the country that they could use. You know, it's it's um, it's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. After your attack and survival, were there any additional women who were killed, any women's bodies that were discovered after your attack? No. Uh, as far as we know, uh, I was the last victim in this area. Now, we all know serial killers don't just stop killing. Uh, most of them, they, they just don't stop. They don't have that ability when they, when they become a serial killer. Uh, so we don't know if he moved to another state. We don't know if he was maybe incarcerated. As far as we know in this area, I'm the last victim and the only survivor, but who knows where he went after this. To your point about the commonalities or similarities with the missing Mara Murray story, whose sister Julie has been a staunch advocate for not only federal involvement, but also for public awareness to try to locate her sister and obtain closure. Part of the appeal has to do with resources and You know, I think about the federal databases in CODIS where you can search based on MO. You can search based on fact commonalities, fact patterns of attacks and crimes and assaults and the like so that it becomes then boundaryless and it becomes irrespective of geographical point because you can say this woman 
stabbed 27 times on a main highway in New Hampshire in 1988. So too was a woman in Colorado at 11 p.m. near a vending machine at Eartha Lake or whatever. Um, so there's an ability to drop commonalities totally outside of jurisdiction because the whole point is criminals don't stay neatly in a jurisdiction. And the second commonality I see between your situation and Mara Murray's case in terms of the appeal for justice and resources is the fact that they were on main highways. So in a short while, the would-be serial killer, the attacker, could have been in a different state altogether. And then, yeah. you know, and, and very quickly, the resources stop at the border, but the criminals don't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's like uh, some people, uh, Maine had a, and still does have a serious, serious issue with uh, unsolved murders up there. And uh, we believe some of the people that I've talked to, like the criminal profiler of uh, my case, uh, Dr. John Philpin, he believes that some of the cases up in Maine may have been connected with the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. But Maine is just as bad, if not worse, than New Hampshire, where they don't want to work together. Mm. They don't want to release information. They don't want to, um, you know, collaborate with other states. It's unfortunate because it's a lot of missed opportunity to solve a lot of these cases and put these monsters in jail before they, you know, so they don't continue to kill uh, women and, and people. So to me, it's like they almost like using, they're protecting their ego over the protection of, of the citizens. And it's, it's unfortunate, but we're trying to change that. <laughs> we're, trying to, we're trying to change a lot of things. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. Before we get into your advocacy, which I'm so excited to share with listeners, I just want to round this out. Can you describe geographically for those who don't live in the Northeast, the proximity between your attack and the sites of where the women's bodies were found? Like how close were they together on the, on the highway or how long would it take to drive between the two? Well, they were all found, all their bodies were found in remote areas. Um, Barbara Agnew went missing off of uh, Route 91. Her body was found in Heartland, I believe. I believe it was Heartland. Uh, real small community. Um, she was found off a dirt road. Uh, now, the interesting ones were uh, Elizabeth Critchley. Um, she went missing down in Connecticut, hitchhiking up, up to New Hampshire and Vermont. Her body was found off a dirt road in unity um five years later eva morse went missing off of route 12 in walpole or charlestown walpole area her body was found 500 feet from where elizabeth critchley's body was found off the same dirt road in the same town um so th those are two Really, really huge commonality. And then there was Ellen Freed. She was also found um, off the uh, Sugar River, which Eva and, and Elizabeth Critchley, where their bodies were found, was also along the Sugar River. Um, but Ellen Freed's body was found in uh, towards Claremont area. Uh, 
her body was found off a dirt road um, in a secluded area. And then there was a 17-year-old Bernice Cordemash. She was found in, um, I believe it was Newport. And uh, her body was found way off in, in a, off a Hutton Road, um, just outside of Claremont. So um, Bernice Cordemash, Ellen Freed, and Eva Morris, and Elizabeth Critchley, they were all right around very close to the Claremont area, which was about 40 minutes from where I was attacked in Swansea, New Hampshire. And then there was, um, and then like 10 minutes down the road in Saxons River, Linda Moore was stabbed and killed in her home, which was right outside of Claremont. Um, it, it was all within a within a, a radius area right extremely close proximity given um especially the remote nature of it i mean as the as 40 minutes away is still really close so given that and that as you said before it was a small community and you were 22 and you went to the fair every year how did your attack and survival against the landscape of those serial murders how did that affect or change your community Oh, I, I know that when when the bodies started showing up in, in, in Unity and in, in the Claremont area, Claremont was extremely concerned um, about the problem, about the, that there was a serial killer uh, roaming. My area, I don't remember. Um, I, I know... I could say, yeah, people were heightened a little bit in the Swansea area from my attack, but in a way not because like a month later, John, Dr. John Philpin was um, kind of studying my case and he went to where I was attacked at that store at the same time of night that I was attacked and he was like parked in the back side of the parking lot and he saw a woman by herself pull in park in front of the soda machine and get a soda. So, you know, some women probably were were frightened in, in their their safety, you know, more more cautious with their safety. But some women weren't. It was um it was, it's mind it's mind boggling to me. But I can't judge because I've already had people judge me about me stopping and getting the soda. Uh so I don't wanna judge but I mean, I imagine there was some heightened fear in the communities. Can you describe how your resulting trauma and this experience has led to your advocacy work and how that's developed? Yeah. Um, well, I, I guess it started when we started our podcast, um, Invisible Tears. Uh, I decided I, I needed a platform to start sharing my healing, um, because for 20 years after my attack, I never had any counseling. And, and I, I obviously suffered uh, PTSD pretty bad. Um, I ended up with a serious gambling addiction and um, I ended up going to jail uh, because of my bad choices. And uh, when, when I started receiving the counseling was, was, it was actually it saved my life. Um, 
you know, that's when I was clinically diagnosed with PTSD, which I, I had a hard time at first uh, admitting that I had that. Um, but I, I, I did some really, really great, intense counseling for seven years uh, for my PTSD. I mean, before that, I, I, I attempted suicide twice, um, you know, but I hit a lot of things. I hid how much pain I was in. I hid, um, I hid so much from so many people. I, I just tried to, I tried to act like, you know, okay, I was attacked. I'm fine. Uh, you know, this is not going to affect me for the rest of my life. And it was destroying my life at the same time. I, I didn't realize how messed up my life really was for 20 years. Um, and then when I started the counseling and did the counseling, um, it was like, wow, I, I, I'm finally, I'm finally living a normal life. And, and, uh, that, that was just game changing for me. And so I decided to start Invisible Tears, um, to share my story of survival, share my daughter's story, uh, share, um, you know, my healing process and to start sharing these unsolved cases and giving voices to those who no longer have a voice. I, I just feel like I have a voice and I need to give them a voice. And, and um, you know, I often wondered and I oft, often asked myself, why did I survive and they didn't? Why did I survive? And now I, I see why I survived. I survived because they needed a voice and I want to give it to them. So um, we started um, we started Invisible Tears, like I said again, um, and, and started really um, allowing people to tell uh, their stories of their loved ones that, that are either missing or their cases are unsolved. And, and that's where all of a sudden the advocacy started kicking in. Met up with Julie. Julie invited me up to um, Maura's vigil back in February, felt so honored and uh, met her for the first time. Um, of course, she's she's an amazing person. And uh, we started talking and realizing, oh, my God, the, the GA, the AG office is like treating her the same exact way that they're treating me. Um, you know, no contact for years and years. Um, no, no responses back through emails or uh, unanswered uh, voicemails and, and stuff like that. This and, is the state attorneys general. Yes. The New Hampshire state attorney general. And, um, so me and me and, uh, Julie were talking quite a bit and we're like realizing, wow, we're, we're not the only ones being treated like this through that office. And, um, so we decided to, um, do a march. We said, we're going to do a march up to the, the AG's office and, and the, state capital and um i also had connected with another case that really really bothered me um trish haynes case uh, she was murdered in new hampshire uh, about five years ago everybody knows who murdered her uh they know who murdered her um, and her family has been advocating for her all these years uh, but they refused to arrest the people that murdered her because they, the AG office claims there's not enough evidence. Well, that's that's bullcrap. They have enough evidence. 
uh, for some reason, they they just refused to um, arrest these people. So I decided, you know what, between me and my team and Mora Mora and her team and Trish Haynes and her team, let's all collaborate. And um, we formed this coalition and we did this march, which was way, the march was, the response was so huge, way more than I ever expected, way more than I ever expected. It actually was, um, we expected a lot of people to come and support us. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing there at one moment and I'm looking around. There was a lot of people there at the march. And I'm looking around and all of a sudden I see all these loved ones holding pictures of their loved ones where their cases were either uh, still a missing case or an unsolved murder. And these cases have been unsolved for years. And these people were there to share their stories along with us because they were treated, being treated the same way we have been through the AG office. And that was like, we had people from Tennessee come up to, to advocate for their family because they've been treated the same way that we've been treated with, um, with the AG office. And we had people from Maine come down. Um, and it was just all these people holding pictures of their loved ones where their cases are still unsolved. And it's like some of these cases were over 20 years old. That is when it hit me. I was like, wow, this, this is way bigger than what, what I ever expected. And, um, so we formed the New Hampshire Coalition of Families for the Missing and Murdered. And um, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. We keep getting people coming to us and, and wanting to you know, volunteer and help and share their stories and, and be a part of this coalition because um, you know, their loved ones are, are still missing or, or their loved ones have been murdered and their cases are still unsolved. And, and we, we need to do better in New Hampshire, you know. The victim advocacy program in the, at the AG's office in Concord is so broken. So broken. They, they, they've had three different advocates in that office since November. Why? Why? <laughs> and, and it's almost like these advocates, they come in and... They're supposed to be working for the victims. They're supposed to be advocating for the victims and the victims' families. But when the the victims and the victims, when the victims' families go and talk to these advocates, it's almost like they're advocating for the AG office. Mm. And it's just um, we want to change that. That that's got to change. And um, you know that's what we're trying to do with this coalition. And. It just keeps growing and growing and growing and more people are, are, are wanting more information. And um, so we did the march back in uh, August. It was a wonderful turnout. And we're hoping, you know, we're probably going to have to do more marches. Uh, we're hoping to see change. We'll see. <laughs> um, but we'll see. Did you receive a formal response by the AG's office after or at your march? And if so, what did they say? <laughs> well, we invited the, the attorney general down uh, 
for 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 Mila. He chose not to show. Uh, but he did send down two other people from the AG office. So they were there all day. They listened to us. Mm -hmm. um, we told our stories. We yelled. We showed frustration with the AG office. We we just want answers, and uh, we voiced our, our opinions about the AG office. And so there was, Trish Haynes' family did get, um, meet with them with a one-on-one -on -one with the AG office. Um, I did get in contact, uh, or a state trooper that is actually investigating my case, making my case active. Um, he, I did meet with him uh, a few days ago. Um, of course, they can't say too much about your case, you know. I mean, they might as well record what they're gonna say because it's, most of the time, it's just the same thing. Um, but. I, I think Julie's supposed to be meeting with them in November, or she's trying to make arrangements to meet with them in November for uh, Maura's case. So we're hoping to see change. It's going to be baby steps. Um, we're going to stay on them. Uh, we're not going away. They're not going to, um, you know, give us the, whole, the same song and dance they always give us that they – you know, the, they tell us what they think we want to hear. Um, we're not doing that anymore. Um, we're going to definitely keep following up on on their changes. They need to make changes in that office. They need to um, change procedures. Uh, their procedures are over forty years old, and we need to we need to make some changes up there. Can you describe exactly what the coalition does? so that people either know how to help or what resources that they can benefit from if they are a cold case or missing persons family? Well, <laughs> see, right now, now this got all put together in, in like a matter of a couple of months. <laughs> and it started off with three cases, Maura uh, Mora's case, Trish Haynes' case, and my case, and the Connecticut River Valley cases, of course, that I that I advocate for. So we, we very quickly put this together in the matter of a few months. And um, when we were at the march, people were coming to us. Where can we go? Give us a website. Da, da, da. We right now are building a website for this. We have somebody building our website. It's going to be a format that they can go to where they can share information, find information. Um, so what I can say is follow our Facebook pages more, uh, either Julie's Facebook page, our Facebook page, Invisible Tears, um, or our Trish Haynes Facebook page. And we're going to get people up to date on, um, about the website and where they can go with information and, um, how they can help and, and all that we do, um, I don't want to say it's it's organically growing, but it's just um, we didn't expect it to become this. But here we are, and we're excited about it, and and um, we're hoping to get more people to come forward. But we're we're also trying to build a, a platform for them to come forward too. So that's it in the process. We'll be right back. 
with more of this story. Going back to your counseling, when you said it was game-changing for you, if you're comfortable with this, can you share what concepts, what was game-changing? What was an idea or what was a, an understanding or what was a realization that you were able to in, uh, have that changed everything for you? And what were you feeling before then? Well, when I started counseling, it was mostly for my, um, it was right after I got arrested. So I was court ordered to go to counseling. And I was court ordered to go to counseling for pretty much my gambling addiction. Um, and then it was like a couple of, uh, couple of, probably a month or so after I started doing the counseling, I had brought up my attack to my counselor. And she's like, whoa, I want to diagnose you with PTSD. And I was like, PTSD, I don't have PTSD. That's for, you know, servicemen and women that have, um, you know, gone overseas and, and, and had trauma from overseas, fighting a war, whatever. And uh, she went over the computer and she printed me up symptoms, all the symptoms that she could find for PTSD that related to me. And she's, there was probably about 15, 20 symptoms on there. She's like, you take that home, you really look at that, and then next week you come back and tell me what you think. Uh, I went home and I looked at it. I was like, holy crap. I had almost every symptom on that paper. What were they? Depression. Depression, um, isolation, uh, survivor's guilt, um, sadness, um, addiction. Uh, it was just one symptom after another. It was, um, and it related to me. And so I went back and I said, you know, okay, I have PTSD. Now what? You know, and she said, now we heal you. And she was such an awesome counselor. Um, so we went through every single one of my symptoms, my nightmares, uh, my depression, my isolation, my survivor's guilt, all that. Um, my fear, my paranoia. Um, you know, I was constantly in fear. I was always constantly um, paranoid. Um, and we went through every single one of my symptoms. It was a seven-year process. And um, that's when I just, I realized, oh my God, I was not living a normal life back then. I was not thinking in a normal way. My decision-making and the choices I was making were so unhealthy. And uh, I realized all that after seven years. And and now I, I, I live a, a very happy, normal life with PTSD. Uh, she's given me tools to address my PTSD symptoms when they arise. And, um, yeah, it's it's just uh, that was one of the reasons why I did Invisible Tears. I wanted to give people that suffer any kind of uh, PTSD or have gone through any kind of trauma, like a car accident or uh, domestic abuse or the loss of a child, any kind of trauma like that. I wanted to give people hope that they can live a happy, normal life because I, I, I'm proof of that. Um, so yeah, that, that's pretty much how it really started with the with the podcast, and and now it's like evolved so much bigger than that. <laughs> if you are comfortable sharing this, 
Could you describe how your work through your PTSD affected or made an impact on your family dynamic? Oh. <sighs> um, I was not the, the, the best mom before my counseling. Um, again, I made a lot of bad choices. Uh, and I was not the best wife, girlfriend. Uh, but after my counseling and everything, um, like I, I've been with my my daughter and my son's father for 37 years. Um, we just got married two years ago. Congratulations, <laughs> uh, newlyweds. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I, I'm a better partner for him. He um, lost a lot of trust uh, for me. And, and, you know, I did a lot of, a lot of bad stuff, a lot of lying, a lot of uh, just a lot of bad stuff. And, um, you know, he's forgiven me. Uh, I earned back his trust. Um, I'm a much better mother to my kids now. I, I'm more upfront. I'm more, um, I'm more involved with their lives now than I was before. Um, my granddaughter, like, she is like the bomb. I absolutely love her. And um, me and my daughter, we're best friends. So me and my daughter and my granddaughter, we do everything together. Um, that relationship is just awesome. My, my daughter is so amazing. She, is, she stood by me through so many bad times. And, and the counseling was hard. It was really, really hard. Uh, I, but I, I put in all the hard work. And she just encouraged me every single day. Um, I, I give a lot of credit to her that I, I've become a, a much better person um, today. She's just, um, she's always been there for me, always encouraged me, always, um, she, she just never, never gave up on me. You know, my bad days, she was there with me. My good days, she was there with me. She's just, uh, she never gave up on me. And so my relationship with her is awesome. Um, and then, of course, my granddaughter, I get to see her every day. So that's pretty awesome. Um, I just, yeah, I wake up every day. And the first thing I say is, I'm grateful to be alive. The second thing I say is, I'm going to be a better person today than I was yesterday. Does it always happen? No. But I do try to be a better person today than I was yesterday. And uh, that's all I can do. Your family must be so proud of you. Yeah. What is your favorite activity to do with your daughter and your granddaughter? Oh, gosh. There's so many I can't even. <laughs> One. I can't, uh, <laughs> One, um, well, in the summers, we love to hit the amusement parks, uh, the fairs. Yes, I still go to fairs. Good. Um, <laughs> um, in the winter, I love to, uh, we love the snow. We love to be outdoors in the snow. Um, past few years, snow has been kind of crappy. Um, what else do we, we just, we love to travel. 
uh, we love to just um, drive and go places we've never been. Um, we're very spontaneous. <laughs> like, uh, wake up and, hey, let's take a ride to New York. You know, that's a four-hour drive one way. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, um, we just we just love to explore. Mm-hmm. What is your message for women who might find themselves in a horrible situation where they need to survive? A fight. <laughs> you know, I, I know, especially after I found out that it was, you know, a serial killer that attacked me. I know that had I gone with him, I wouldn't be speaking with you today. And, um, you know, I fought. I fought hard, and I I was totally determined not to go with him. Um, But every every situation is different, you know. I guess what I could say is just fight and, and, um, you know, it's pretty easy for me or anybody else to sit there and say, well, don't put yourself in that situation uh, where you have to fight for your life. Um, I, I was judged for that. You know, I, I was judged for that. Um, but it, it's, you know, I can put a message out there and say, if you had to fight for your life and you escaped domestic violence or anything like that, you know, not only uh, you're a survivor. Um, I I had to really convert myself. That was one of the things I had to do with my counseling was convert myself from no longer a victim. I'm a survivor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a kick-ass survivor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I, I fought. I fought off someone that most people didn't or most people probably could not have. And um, my big, big message is if you're a survivor, never lose hope and always believe in yourself that life can get better. I think the same message in a way you know, to fight is might be one of your messages or the message to the families of those who have missing loved ones or those who are in cold cases. Keep fighting, keep fighting for those resources, fighting for the national recognition, Mm -hmm. for the awareness, for the attention on what should be resolution and justice. Jane, thank you. Thank you so much for your living by example and leading by example, your advocacy. It's really an honor to have heard your story from you. I am so grateful for your time today and the efforts that you continually undertake to help those who are in these cold cases or have missing loved ones like the Marie family and the Trish Haynes family and your family. So, you know, I think it's important that they they, um, get their stories out there and they keep being the voice for the voiceless. Um, You know, one of the things with the the coalition march is... um, my co-host, uh, Drew Bedard, 
he um, documented everything about the the um, the march mm-hmm. that we had back in August, and he's he's doing a, a getting the documentary together, um, voice for the voiceless, um, and uh, he's he also has a a, a GoFundMe page going, uh, which would be great if anybody would like to uh, donate to help him. Um, with this documentary, because I think this documentary is going to be huge um, to help get the stories out, to help um, have people know that this is what's going on in our AG office, um, in not only in New Hampshire, but several other states too. So um, if you go to his uh, GoFundMe page website, it's at invisible-tears.com mm-hmm. you'll find his um his uh gofundme page also um you know follow follow us on invisible tears podcast uh that would be great and uh i want to thank you for doing this because this really families and victims like me that their cases are unsolved These are the platforms that they need to tell their stories, to get their stories out there. So really big shout out and thank you to you for doing this and um, asking me to be on today to, to give me the platform to tell my story too. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.